looking to stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm Jamie. And this is Dan. And I'm Patrick. And I'm Micah. So tonight we're sitting down to discuss Rachel, who is a character we have not yet discussed in our podcast in general, but also in our series that we have right now, which is A 700 Layer Cake, The Cult of Blade Runner. And we just felt like it was appropriate as we we are nearing the end of our, this series. We have an event coming up next month. We felt like it was time to really dive in and discuss who she is. Not just who she is as a character, but what informed that character. And we've been in discussions about Sean Young. And there's, of course, a lot of controversy that surrounds Sean Young as a person, as an actor. A lot of stories that sort of follow and haunt her. And I think depending on who you're talking to, some might be true, some might not be true, some might be based off her own perceptions, or maybe Sean Young not having the perception that everyone else has about who she is. We don't, we aren't really here to weigh in on that so much, but we did want to talk about a character that is what I consider to be the heart and soul of both Blade Runner and 2049. Even though her character in 2049 is gone, you still feel her, there, feel her there in every moment of the film. But as we are covering the original film in this monumental year of 2019, we wanted to do the character of Rachel justice and devote an entire episode to her and also talk about, again, what has informed her. Maybe what made Rachel Rachel was also what makes Sean Young Sean Young. And... Uh, so yeah, that's sort of where we're at tonight. You guys know that I have this really intense connection to Rachel, um, philosophically, emotionally, all of those things that we've discussed over and over. Do you, does your opinion of her character, can you separate the character from the actor? That's kind of a, a, a weird thing because we've only really talked about her character, but I know all of us sort of have different opinions about who Sean Young the actor is. Yeah, so I, I definitely don't think about Sean Young when I watch Blade Runner. Like, I watch the character as Rachel, and I'm invested in the scenes and in the film, and so I only really view each actor as their character. Um, one thing that we've talked about before that rings through true for me, though, is I cannot go back and see Rachel the way I did when I was a child or in, like, my first viewings, um, because I know what's going to happen to her. And so all the confidence that she brings on screen and the like greatness of her character when she walks in um, kind of, you know, washes away as you get these really emotional scenes that are certainly, even if I, and I don't necessarily disagree with you about who is like at the heart of the film, but certainly the issue of whether your life is really yours and you know your history and your memories and your background are really real um is certainly one of the central issues of the film and of course that happens uh, mostly in the scene with her because she's the one 
you know, new experimental nexus that's been implanted with memories. And so we'll talk about it more, I'm sure, but the scene where she starts to cry when Deckard tells her, you know, those aren't your memories, they're somebody else's, Tyrell's nieces. Um, it's just such a like world shattering break for that character that it's just hard for me to go back and watch the beginning of the movie and not think about that and think about the tragedy that's about to happen to her. So um, that's kind of what I think about a lot when I think about her character in general. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because um, Sean Young is so clearly gifted as an actress. I mean, she, she gave, she's given a number of, of extremely memorable roles um, throughout her career, which has been long and, and productive, even though it's marked by these periods of you know absence. She has done a lot of really amazing stuff. Um, and I think this was such an early film. It was her third, her third uh, picture after Stripes and Jane Austen in Manhattan. Um, so she was, you know, so young when she filmed this, and so green, as she you know points out in Future Noir, um, that it's almost like this sort of time capsule to a point in her career where she hadn't really um, come out into her own yet. We're kind of watching it happen with this role. In terms of separating the artist from the art, um, I think that's something that I, I definitely do because I don't think I, I when I see when I see Rachel, and this is a testament to Sean Young. When I see Rachel um, on screen, I don't think of her as anything other than the nexus that she is in the film. Um, and I feel that way even about Harrison Ford. I, I mean, honestly, when I see Blade Runner, I'm not seeing actors in it. Um, and I, I guess that sounds kind of corny, but it's I, I really honestly mean it. I, I don't see them. I, a lot of There's a lot of films that are kind of star vehicles, right? There's a lot of movies where it's clear. Even Tom Cruise is somebody who I think is criminally underrated as an actor. I think he's actually extremely good. And I think he has done um, some really dangerous and interesting work in his career. But even when you see him in something like Eyes Wide Shut, which is a great example of, you know, an extremely non-Tom Cruise performance, I can't stop thinking about the fact that it's Tom Cruise doing that. And a lot of this kind of shock value comes out of the fact that it's him in that role, right? With Sean Young um, and with everybody else who was on set, including Harrison Ford, who was the biggest star in the world probably at that point, or one of them, um, I'm really not seeing them as their as the the people who are creating those roles, and uh, and I think there's a lot of reasons to that which we can probably talk about tonight, but um, I'm I'm struck by how little I actually conflate Sean Young as a person and as an artist with that particular character. Well, you know, I definitely. Um... As, as Sean Young has mentioned in many interviews how difficult the process was for her to bring Rachel to life, I truly appreciate um, her struggle as an actor and the fact that she was so new to Hollywood and all these big pictures and even like the pure fact of her going um, nose to nose with Harrison Ford in all of her scenes. Like I think that's a huge testament to her bravery and I think the vulnerability that she was able to bring to Rachel is exquisite. And I really, truly appreciate taking a step back every now and then to look at her. Because I, I agree with both of you guys. Like, I really, truly, when I see this movie, for whatever reason, and I, I mean, Harrison Ford, I love him, and he's always Han Solo to me. But there are, like, a lot of times in films where you're like, I'm looking at Harrison Ford. But for some reason, in, in Blade Runner, you're just... You're not. You're looking at Deckard, and you're looking at Rachel, and these are these people, and the world is very real. And so um, it's nice to take a step back right now and like really um, pay tribute to the, what those actors did to bring these the lives that they did bring to the screen. So I think that's really cool, and um, it's very obvious that Sean put her whole heart into her performance. 
And I will say just briefly that I, I, I think Sean Young is a perfect candidate for this sort of third act career renaissance. I think that she has such an amazing gift and that she's been underutilized for so many years that and just seeing her even in the alienist last year was so exciting for me i was like oh my god there, there she is on screen again i think that uh i think she's really like primed for that and and i and i know we're all pulling for that i think it'd be great to see her get more you know really impactful work because she clearly deserves it so um i hope that i hope that happens Agreed. one thing one thing that i think i find interesting is i've been so enamored with Sean Young or actually with Rachel for so long that there's always been something sort of bugging me even as a, a young as a teenager when I saw the film for the first time just trying to understand like where is this intensity coming from from this woman this intensity of performance there's something about her that's not like anyone else I mean also because her character obviously isn't like anyone else in the film she's going through something that Roy Batty isn't going through um and she's also in a completely different space than Harrison Ford, whereas, as we know, the character of Deckard is sort of just along for the ride. He's just sort of asleep at the wheel. Whereas when we meet Rachel, she's not that way at all. So I've always tried to look deeper with the performance of Rachel, but also who Sean Young was at the time. And I think I certainly my heart sort of broke for her as you know reading her accounts of being on set and feeling bullied and the one thing that really has stuck out to me is she's always seemed to be hesitant to discuss Blade Runner just even in the 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 interview in Future Noir with you know done by Paul Salmon who we've had on the show before she's you can just feel the hesitation she doesn't you don't feel like she has a lot of nice things to say it's so my you know what you take back from that interview which at least what i take back from it is there's something that that was traumatic that happened to her and then there's the 1982 interview that she gave during the promotional period for the film where she's being interviewed about her performance and you can even see then there's this sort of protection this wall that comes up with her where she's very like you can just almost see her hands go up like I don't want to talk about this too much no this wasn't great I don't want to do this again she says that in the interview the role of Rachel the character of Rachel herself is someone who un goes through something that is essentially devastating she's devastated it's like a bomb goes off inside her and she's everything is taken away from her and it seems like that was an experience Sean Young had as well, where, you know, in the interview she's had with, you know, she gives to Paul Salmon. She says that she felt isolated. Um, she didn't really get a lot of contact with Ridley Scott. He didn't really give her a lot of input as to what she should be doing for that role. She did say she went to airports and she would watch businesswomen get off the airplane and she would watch how they walk and their confidence and sort of informed how she would bring Rachel to life she looked at Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and again looking for sort of that really strong and powerful woman but that was only the first 15 minutes of her character you know she how many minutes of that film is she in what is it like 22 minutes 26 minutes maybe I don't know Sounds about right so that whole persona that she has is sort of crumbles the second time we see her it's it's over I, it's almost like I can't talk about Sean Young or Rachel in this celebratory way because it almost feels like this trauma happened to this woman during this film and 
she's still traumatized by it and it's evident in her performance and it's hard to sort of figure out what to do with it. The same way you can say every decision you've ever made is exact or, or everything that's happened to you is exactly what led to you being sitting in this seat right now. You could say the same thing about Sean Young's character in Blade Runner that there were certainly her inputs and what she studied and what she did as a young actor. Um, but also the way she was treated by Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford certainly affected that character in a way. And I don't think there's anything in the film that you could say, oh, I wish she'd done more of this or more of that, or I wish she played this part differently. I think it's like a perfect embodiment of that role. And I think you, I've talked about it before, you hear stories like this from actors, from really demanding directors, Ridley Scott, Stanley Kubrick, there's lots of them. And they'll talk about the kind of issues they had um, during the filming of the movie. I think Tom Cruise, speaking of Eyes Wide Shut, got like ulcers during filming that movie because it was so intense and they shot so many times. They took so many takes. But him and Nicole Kidman both look back and say, but they got he got such an excellent performance out of us. And I've said that before, even on this show. Um, And so, like, what would you go back and change without actually changing her performance and changing the character. So while I while I feel for what she went through, and of course that was a shitty shoot for everybody, but she sounds to have gotten the brunt of sort of the emotional isolation and kind of like one of the toughest scenes in the film, et cetera. Um, in the end, she constantly gets lauded for that being one of her best roles ever. And I, I'm not an actor. We can ask Micah since she is, but I would imagine that in the end, 20, 30 years later, you've got to look back and kind of be glad that it worked out that way because it helped put you in a place to have like the greatest performance arguably of your career. Um, So I don't know. I I have mixed feelings about it for sure. It's hard to look at it one way or the other. I I do think there's something to be said um, for legitimate trauma. And if, um, if something like that is a real true thing that is hard to let go of, then that's, that's terrible. Like that's a tragedy in and of itself. Um, I've always been of the mind that um, if you're going to be an actor, you do need to take care of yourself, your body, your health, your mental health, because acting is not sustainable if you don't. And sure, like the method acting always gets the Oscar or whatever, but you know, like how long are you going to be able to keep that up if if it's if it's so difficult for you that you can't even talk about it later? And um, I personally have had some experience with that, and it's it's. It's not to me worth it. Um, I mean, yes, like getting a great performance is incredible and you feel wonderful about it. And I'm not Sean Young, so I don't know how she feels about it. And she doesn't truly talk too much about it. She's pretty mysterious about it. But um, there's, there's something to be said about both sides. Like there's that creativity when you're in the zone and you truly are feeling something and you're playing these scenes where it's, it's very disturbing and very difficult to go there as a human. Um, but then I think the best thing is to leave that at work and then go home and you're yourself and you're not the character anymore. And it, it makes me truly feel for actors when, when that seems to be difficult to do and, and when they do get trauma from it. So I'm definitely thankful for the performance, but I do hope that she didn't get too traumatized from it. I don't think trauma is ever worth it either. Like, I don't think you can step back and say... Like, cause I, I think my trouble now is viewing her performance. Her performance might be a reaction to that trauma. Like she said that during the 
during the scene where she's at Deckard's apartment and they call it the love scene, um, which obviously we know it's not really a love scene. It's very complicated. She said that at one point Harrison Ford steps in and he said something horrible to her. And she said that she started to cry. Uh, she said Harrison Ford witnessed that and then like he he mooned her to make her laugh. And then she said later on, Ridley Scott said to her, you're a smart girl. And she was like, She's like, no, 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 no. He said, you're a clever girl. Okay. Clever girl, whatever. <laughs> no, I'm just um, saying there's an alien connection. Well, and, and, and he or, said, I mean, uh, and he said, a Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park connection <laughs> is what I meant to say. But also the clever, the clever girl comment was because he was saying that she had made Harrison Ford feel bad. No, but right. she said in her interview though, that she didn't know what he meant by that. And she thought he might've been insinuating that she was fake crying to get a response from Harrison Ford. And she was like, those were real tears. Right. Um, so I, right. my point is, I don't think that, I think all of us have gone through trauma in our lives. And I, I think we, if you can come out a better person, that's great. I still don't think the trauma is worth it. It might be hard to say, and I'm not saying that you're saying this like without empathy, Dan, but I think it's, it might be a little bit hard to say, to Sean Young, well, look, it was a great performance. Come on, get over it. Not to say you're saying get over it, but there's obviously something about that whole endeavor that is a is a form of PTSD that this woman carries, where she it's hard for her to talk about. Of course, she has a bit of a sordid life, a bit of a sordid career, very controversial even amongst us four in terms of what happened, what hasn't happened, what she's caused, blame she's taken, blah 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 blah, all of those things. But I can't help. I think I get I'm conflicted about the character of Rachel because some of it seems like this woman was was bullied and mistreated and no one's given her an explanation as to why. Um, And that endears me to the character of Rachel a little bit even more. But it also sort of throws into the conversation. Is art worth that? Is a performance in a film worth that? And I suppose we can't answer that. I know it's affected us positively we can look at her performance and say wow this has changed my life i know that i can say that it's made me a better person i'm able to process and verbally process emotionally process what i've seen but was it worth it for sean young the person but i think to to uh, there's there's two things i want to say quick i think one thing is that to to basically say that the performance exists because of trauma that she endured is basically to rob her of any agency as an actor or any like ability for i mean it's basically saying you weren't performing anything you were just being bullied on camera so congratulations for just kind of being a celluloid bully subject i i, I kind of feel like she's an actress like she she can act maybe she was using some of that to inform the performance but this wasn't a documentary like this was a film that she was building a role for and i think that if if we just basically get so hung up on this idea that rachel is an effective character because she was bullied as an actress i think we're basically taking away her um gifts as an actress i I think she was acting in the movie i don't think that she was we're just watching some kind of a real documented reaction i just want to say the other thing though i want to say is that this was a difficult shoot, as we've said, for everybody, right? The crew was fucking miserable. Ridley Scott was miserable. He was screaming, we know, right? The crew were wearing T-shirts that were anti-Ridley Scott. Harrison Ford was about to walk out a million times. This was a very difficult situation for everybody. And in the midst of that, you have a young woman. You have all of these gender dynamics at play. You have her age at play. You have her experience at play. There was a huge power differential here, right? So... This is a long way of saying that any of the issues that were 
affecting everybody, we're only going to be even worse for her, right? So on one hand, I'm saying that, you know, like we can't get so hung up on this idea that she was like being subjected to trauma. But I do want to also say that she was probably having an extremely hard time, as she has articulated, because we know everybody was. And because of her station in life and her career and her gender in, in the studio at the time and in the, the culture of Hollywood filmmaking, um, I'm sure it was even worse for her. And, and it's completely valid that she felt that way. But I do I don't want to get too hung up in this idea that Rachel is a powerful character only because of trauma that Sean Young endured. No, and I'm not trying to say that like that's like, yeah, I that's wasn't what we're seeing. I was just saying it was a part of it. Yeah, like I think. Well, and also we got to let her. I mean, she hasn't said anything to it. And I think. We don't want to go down the path of like assuming that this is all that she thought about because we were not Sean Young and we weren't on the set and and like you were saying, Patrick, everybody had a hard time, so it was it was tough for everybody. Um, so yeah, we should keep that in mind as we go forward. I think. I mean, but she has said a few things though, like again, the interview, which I'll include uh, a snip of it in this episode. You know, uh, one interesting point in this interview, there's this somewhat disaffected idiot who's interviewing her um and they start talking about the love scene and sean young is like i don't really know if you could call this a love scene and eventually they sort of cut it at the end like they're out of time but they talk about it a little bit but this interviewer says well he kind of gets into a macho routine with you there when you're alone together and i was struck by that in the script i wasn't quite sure maybe what was going on there you think you weren't I mean, clear what was going on? I think how I felt. And I sort of laughed like that's how he characterized her, him roughing her up as this macho routine. Like, oh, that's what sort of men do, you know, like just this, just this routine. And I, I thought it was interesting. And you could see it on her face. Like she was like, no, I don't think so. And then she goes on to say. The scene is not a scene I'd want to do over again. Huh? It's not huh? a scene I'd want to do over again because it because of because of the violent uh, intention of of the character Deckard. I mean, it wasn't a pleasant scene. It wasn't the type of scene where you go, darling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that wouldn't have been appropriate in terms of that scene anyhow. So, you just uh, it's it's meant to arouse that type of feeling in you. It's it's not exactly a real love scene. I mean, I think maybe that there's some obviously there's actors you know whether it's in films like Lord of the Rings or many movies that are a lot of work. Game of Thrones, they're in the trenches, it's at night, it's in mud, it's in all of these things where they're like, no, I don't think I ever want to do that again. She wasn't in any of those conditions. She was in this emotional, very small place with this man who was the biggest star in Hollywood at that point. And she was more or less nobody. And she's saying, I would never want to do this again. And I think that's telling. And I, and I think when I say what I say about her performance, it's really only that one scene that when I, th not that I think of, oh, Rachel in this is just this one scene with Harrison Ford, but it seems like to me that scene and those, that whole dynamic surrounding that has affected her the most and she doesn't even really want to talk about it and she doesn't understand it. And I think when you're mixing in sexual trauma, perhaps with women and being on set and she's surrounded by sort of this crew full of men and she doesn't, that's the the point where I'm like, let's hold off a bit. And then also, of course, the, the conversations that we've had around that scene or in Fields of Calantha when people sort of, oh, she's just this, she's just that. She was just a washing machine. What does she care? Sort of all of those things. So she's hearing all of these remarks or 
finding out about these remarks in this scene that was a place she'll never she never wants to go to again. I just think it's a little bit telling, and that's the trouble that I have, not just with that scene, but with maybe she doesn't get a fair shake for what she's experienced on this film that she doesn't want to talk about a lot, you know? Yeah, fair enough. I think it's complex and, and yeah, none of us were there. So it's hard to make up our minds based on snippets of conversation. I drop music. I didn't know if I could play. I remember lessons. I don't know if it's me or Terrell's niece. Beautifully. Why is Rachel so impactful? Why can we not stop thinking about her and talking about her? Why is she so important to this film and to essentially both films, but obviously the original? I I would say as a, as a new thought that's coming to me now, my first instinct would be to say because she's the she goes through the most relatable, emotionally impactful moment from a human perspective that anybody that's a human could relate to. Um, I think that there are other characters you can relate to. You can be a disgruntled alcoholic that hates his job. And I'm sure that if that's the case for you, you have a whole perspective on Deckard that someone who is not going through that doesn't have. So like there are other elements and Roy, I think Roy has probably the biggest influence on people having a connection, but it's like a much bigger, more philosophical picture about what it means to be human, what it means to be treated like a slave. Whereas um, the Rachel connection is more intimate you know, like other characters have pictures in the film, like um, Leon shows pictures of, you know, his friends and most of them seem to be currently of like replicants he's hanging out with, whatever. And those pictures mean something to him. But nobody, nobody gets a full frame photo of them with their mother brought to such life that Ridley Scott decided to cut a second of video into it to really make the picture come to life with sound effects, a subtle effect that we've talked about before. That's like, I missed that the first 10 times I saw the movie or whatever. It's so beautifully done. And then have someone shove it in your face and say, no, this is just bullshit. Some, this is a real memory. It's just not yours. This is someone else's life. Like there's nobody that if you can take the second, or whatever to put yourself in that scene and in that character's viewpoint that isn't going to be heartbroken by that. So I think there's a very real emotional human connection. Um, I think starting in that moment and then moving on for the rest of the film, obviously I don't think, I, I think for as confident and the sort of elite executive and all that that's it's cool it's a great performance i love that part of the character but that's not what's impactful that's not what i think about when i think about rachel right i don't think about her in like her power suit kind of talking shit to decker confidently i think about the moment where that tear rolls down her cheek and she is realizing that everything about her life is a lie and i think that we can put ourselves in that exact scene and think about how that would impact us but it also makes us think more abstractly about what 
are lies that have been told to us in our lives or what have been relationships, circumstances, you know, jobs, whatever, that everyone else had a different perspective about it than you, right? And then you get fired or the relationship ends or whatever it is. And all of a sudden you have a whole new perspective and like those things can be really heartbreaking. So I, I just think there's something that we can all very easily connect to in the, in the character and in her scenes for me is part of what makes Rachel so impactful. Um, yeah, I think what's what's nice about Rachel is that she represents a very simple concept. I think, Dan, like you're saying, that um, is one that leads to really deep personal analysis. I think Batty represents freedom and Rachel represents identity. And those are two kind of like simple ideas that have like really far reaching consequences the more you think about them. Um, the loss of either of those things can be completely um, annihilating. And the gaining of either of those things can be completely, you know, literally liberating, but but can also be kind of the key to living a successful and happy life, right? Um, if you're not free, you can't escape. Uh, and if you don't have a sense of identity, you can't find yourself, right? Those are two really deep things. <clears throat> um, I think what uh, is useful about Rachel as a character is that she gives um, this other philosophical angle to the movie that's very human, like you're saying, in that she makes us think about moments in our lives when that's happened to us, because we've all had those moments where our identity has been really pivoted. Um, and that is never something that happens because we have control over it, right? You never wake up one day and think I'm, the rest of my life will be lived in a different light now, right? It's just, it happens to you. You lose somebody, you lose something you've depended on your entire life. Um, you find somebody. It doesn't always have to be lost too, right? It's it's about transmutation. It's, it's, it's a changing of something. And I think that... Um, We've all been through that in different ways, and Rachel is a really great tether in a movie that can be very ambivalent and very all over the place, philosophically and aesthetically and emotionally. She's a very tangible connection to a very deep emotional place in a lot of us, right? Um, you know, I was just talking tonight, our, our, you know, our son is turning three tomorrow as we record this, and I was talking to um, our other son tonight about how uh, he has to say goodnight to two-year-old Henry, because tomorrow three-year-old Henry will wake up. Right. And of course, you know, he was he was crying about it. I felt like kind of an asshole. Aww. But that's something that but I was thinking, you know, I was I was glad that he was crying about it because it meant that he was aware of the actual gravity of that. And that every single day, basically, we wake up a new person in a new context, in a new world that has never been discovered before, you know, and the unending miracle of that cycle of going to sleep and waking up into a world that nobody has discovered yet is <clears throat> pretty amazing. But it also means that we're waking up in a world where everything can fall out from under our fucking feet at any second. And a couple times in a lifetime, two times, three times, maybe four times, that happens, right? Um, and we get to see Rachel undergo that in a really visceral way that is so beautifully, beautifully acted and so powerful. And I think that's part of the key to her um, enduring appeal as a, as a character. And I, I also just want to briefly say, I think a huge reason why she's so impactful is just the aesthetics of her character. Um, I think that her costume design is just fucking out of this world. I think her makeup is incredible. The fact that it took her, you know, two hours to get into that suit with that, that hair and that makeup and everything. It is, it is truly iconic in a way, nothing else in Blade Runner other than maybe the spinner and some of Los Angeles is, I mean, she is the enduring image of that movie aesthetically. She's the one who's on everybody's you know, t-shirts. She's the one who's on our fucking logo. She's the one who people paint podcast t-shirt over, and over yeah. again, podcast mm -hmm. t-shirt. Um, and it's because there is something geometrically divine about that 
something, you know, we're, we see old Hollywood, we see Art Deco, and we see an imagined future all wrapped up into one, yeah. um, like, really uh, astounding package. And I think um, I think that's another reason that we shouldn't overlook and when we're talking about, you know, why she's lasted this long as a character. Yeah, it's, a trope and it's an idea. timelessness, essentially. She's timeless. And, yeah, she represents so much. And I think a beautiful thing about who she is is that her and Deckard intersect at a point in their lives where like we've said before he doesn't know who he is but he doesn't even care you know whereas Rachel actually cares Rachel and I find like what we haven't really discussed about Rachel in relationship to Deckard is the one who robs her of her identity is not Tyrell it's Deckard she he has the he has a moment where he could say in this apartment, you know what? He could say, you know, you're probably right or whatever. I mean, maybe she knows it's not true. Maybe she suspected. I mean, even Tyrell says, you know, I think she suspects. Maybe that's hopeful thinking on his part so he doesn't feel as guilty when he when it's revealed to her. But it's really on Deckard, the theft of her identity. And it's just an interesting time where they they meet each other right when they need it. And he needs her more than she needs him. She doesn't need him, but he needs her. And I think that's where she finds her power. Not that she's like, I found my power, but for us, that's where she finds her power, where she lifts him up. I do want to say, though, I think she does need him as much as he needs her, actually, because until that interaction, she didn't know the truth, which was heartbreaking. But now that she knows the truth, she's liberated by it and she decides to act on it, you know, um, not to say, I, I mean, in, you, you know, me and my feelings on Deckard, I am not a, an apologist for him whatsoever as a character. But um, but I think that that interaction actually is basically how she gets what what Batty is trying to impart, right, which is like her actual life and getting to live it. Um, and I, I think that there, there is something beautiful in a very painful way about that. Well, jumping off of that, I think um, we've discussed this before about the character of Deckard. Um, I think there are two people who make Deckard, and that's obviously Roy when his very life is saved at the very end of the movie. But Rachel is the other. And um, I think that is especially locked down, at least for me, when I saw 2049 and where you see what Deckard's life Deckard's life has been since um since he met Rachel and since they went on that adventure together which we don't get to know about we can only kind of develop that in our imagination but I think Deckard would not be anything without Rachel as she wouldn't have lived much longer or lived a very open a life with open eyes um and so although I I I I would say for me like the most powerful thing about Rachel is the fact that we see this incredibly strong and confident creature come out of the shadows literally into the light and dazzle everyone around her. And then that creature is completely broken in front of us. And yet she survives and she survives past the ending of the film. And um, like we've talked about before, she survived at, at least in the, her spirit survives through 2049. So her influence on the characters around her even if she, Rachel, is not aware of it herself, like it's a very tangible thing. And like I said, for me, there are two characters that save Deckard, and that's Roy and Rachel. 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 <laughs> and I think Roy really is 
that jumping off point without Roy talking to Deckard, Deckard would not have come back to Rachel the way that he did. Roy was the door for him. And it was like this wake up moment that here's this replicant who wants to live. And he's now entwined with another replicant who wants to live. So what's he going to do? And Roy presents that to him. And you can see it on Deckard's face when he's talking to, well, when Roy is talking to him like this, this change, like, I mean, you can see this change come over the character of Deckard where when we see him in the beginning of that scene, when they're on the roof, he is not the same person when we see him at the end of that scene where his face is softer. You see empathy on him. We haven't seen anything like that before. And then that face is the face that meets Rachel under the covers at the end and gently pulls the covers away from her. And he's terrified that maybe she's not in the apartment or that she's dead. Um, It's really, it's really, really amazing. It's, it's like Roy and Rachel, even though they couldn't be so different, they're also so similar. Where they're a key, sort of two parts of a key that unlock humanity for this human, essentially, for all intents and purposes. And, and I think, in a very real way, Roy is almost as much a progenitor of Anna Staline as Deckard is. I, I think, I mean, Roy, of course, is the reason why they, you know, escape together. He's like the reason he wanted more life. And he kind of imparted that to Deckard at the end of the film and Deckard left with Rachel and and they decided to go and do something about it. And they decided that there was this impossible goal of bringing life into the world that wasn't manufactured by circumstances out of their control. Um, And and I think, um, I I don't want to steer this back to Roy because we've just done 35 episodes on him, but, but I I do think that there was this amazing (laughs) enmeshment. (laughs) There's an amazing enmeshment between those two characters, right? Th- those are those are the two characters. I mean, I mean Deckard is fine. Like De- whatever, he he becomes activated and becomes much more interesting in twenty forty nine. But to me, twenty nineteen is Roy and Rachel, and the ways in which they are kind of a yin and yang to each other, and the ways in which when you rotate a yin and yang enough, they become gray. There, a lot of what makes them so impactful is in that gray space. I think uh, where these notions of identity and freedom come because you can't have either without the other, right? If you're if you're not free, you're always living under somebody else's regime or somebody else's idea of who you should be and not knowing who you actually are right and 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 they're completely codependent as concepts philosophically and i think that's why they work together so beautifully in that film and i also i also think like where's deckard in the beginning of the film like he is not wanting to do his job anymore as a blade runner he is feeling already morally conflicted about what he's doing and then rachel comes in and personifies that for him and basically puts it in his face. Like I was right. My feelings were right. The feelings that were driving me to drink and take terrible care of myself were correct. Like I should not be just putting these people down. And I say people because to me, the replicants are people. So I think she kind of opens his eyes to that. Like I, yeah, my little gut feeling that I've been getting sick over was correct. And then Roy comes in at the end and really, really solidifies that for him. And I think finally, like you said, Patrick, activates him as a character to see him like boosted into 2049. And part of that is she makes the implicit explicit when she literally asks him if he's ever retired a human by mistake, right? Like that, that that's an enormous thing because you know Deckard has been fucking thinking about that every single night when he's been drinking himself to fucking death on his piano. He's been thinking about that and nobody's ever said it before. Nobody else has ever noticed that. And that is an amazingly perceptive and amazingly quasi-empathetic thing for a fucking replicant to be saying to him in that moment. That is a truly human leap 
that she makes, I think, in terms of empathy. And I think that that is, uh, that is his first wake-up call, like Michael was saying. I think that's, a, that's a, huge, a huge thing that we shouldn't forget about. And then she poses a second question, which is something we don't talk about and a lot of people don't talk about again, where she looks like she's sort of in the hallway of his apartment. And this is after her first, I think it's her first visit to that apartment. She, her eyeliner is smeared and she walks up to him and she goes, You know that Voight comp test of yours? Ever take that test yourself? Right away, Rachel is posing really difficult questions to him. Rachel's not afraid, even in the absence of her agency, sort of in the in the entrails of her agency. She's questioning everything now, like, what is real? Have you taken that test yourself? Do you know what you are? Um, and that. And you have Deckard sort of surrounded by people, even, you know, at the end when Gaff is, he's remembering what Gaff is saying about Rachel, like, you know, too bad she won't live. Then again, who does? Everyone around Deckard is sort of having him or posing these these really, really difficult questions. Like you said, Patrick, Rachel is identity and Roy is freedom. And they both ask those questions. Deckard, do you have identity? Who are you? Have you taken that test before? Have you ever done something that really truly bothered you and kept you awake at night? And then Roy comes in. Do you live with freedom? Do you live your life like you don't have tomorrow or you don't have four minutes left to say something beautiful like this? Like both of them are representing those two huge things that a person needs to live a successful life or at least a self-fulfilled life. And, um, and I think it's it's pretty evident in just the dialogue that they have with Deckard. Like they're 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 just like there at his face, asking him these really tough questions that they're wrestling with themselves. And think about the leap that it takes for Rachel to ask those two questions. She was a fucking engineered receptionist, essentially, right? Like she she has like no psychoanalytical training. She's not been on a spinner force. She has no insights into that stuff. And yet she sees so deeply into Deckard in that moment that she asks him the two most important questions anybody possibly could. I think that's I mean, that's an incredible testament to that character's strength, I think. When you mentioned Anna Celine and Roy kind of being as responsible for her as Rachel is. It also dawned on me that the Rachel of the first film has her memories destroyed in front of her. Her daughter creates memories for a living. I had never made that connection before. Right. <laughs> Damn it, these movies. That's a really They're good point. Yeah. I do have to fucking bookmark. Yeah. It's been so right. long yeah. since we've amazing. talked about 2049. I can't wait to get back into it. I know. It, it, feel, it feels like, it feels like it's so exciting. And another bookmark for another episode, which we can just kind of throw out here right now, is, is Jamie, you were mentioning Too Bad She Won't Live, but then again, who does? That line in particular has hit me very differently at different points in my life. Um, and, I, and I want to, um, you know, even if this isn't on the episode right now, I, I just want to say, like, I, I want to talk about that specific line in a lot of detail at some point. Because depending on how you're watching the movie, it can mean such different things. Mm. Yeah, and and it's hitting me now differently than it did even just a year ago. Ooh. So bookmark that for another Well, let me ask you this, an and we point. can include this yeah. in this episode. Yeah. How is it hitting you now? Is it hitting you now in context of Rachel or something completely different? So that line always hits me really intensely. And then um, have you ever retired a human by mistake always hits me. And, and like those, those lines and I'm now like, I'm such a doofus. I'm just now noticing that it's Rachel who's, who says like, 
the two other lines that really hit me the most, which are that. And like you said, Jamie, when you brought it up, you know, have you ever taken this test? Because I just think it's so fascinating that I'm sure no one else has asked him that. And he must have been totally rocked. Another line that Rachel says that we've talked about a little bit, but that's really fucking powerful is when she's at his window and you see the lights coming in and it's one of the most beautiful moments and she's turning towards the window and she's shrouded in that black fur. It's probably fake fur or synthetic fur at that point um, in that future. And what is that line Deckard says to her about the business? Shakes. Me too. I get them bad. <clears throat> Part of the business. I'm not in the business. I feel like what's interesting and so terrifying about that line is that coming from Rachel as not just a replicant, but as a woman, is that oftentimes a lot of those women replicants are created as pleasure models. They're created as objects for men. Rachel, she might have been an experiment, but who was she? She was this beautiful, petite well put together woman that was essentially a statue in Tyrell's. She was like uh, the the Ava in Ex Machina. Um, she was there to study. Um, how is she responding? Let's see. She was just this object, and she was really the business. The business of men making women for pleasure. The business of men making women demure. I mean, it, it's so. And it also to me speaks. I don't know. It's just, it's one of the most powerful lines of the film for me because it, it not just, it just doesn't speak to what's going on with Tyrell and what's going on with the Nexus line and Nexus production, but also how women are viewed. Um, and I, I think about they're going into the bar and where Zora is working and you see, who do you see in, you know, the dancing in the plastic in the plastic cases are barely clothed women with masks on. So you can't see their faces. They're just bodies sort of moving. And the future, certainly as we see it in 2049, that's it's like the business of pleasure. That's what Tyrell and then Wallace ends up. And that's the business that Rachel is sort of a part of. And it's incredibly profound. And I also think to go to an earlier topic, a way earlier topic, it also echoes sentiments of who Hollywood is at that time as well. Um, and, and, and I want to just maybe just read it, read of something very briefly from future noir, because, because um, Paul's interview with, with her um, goes into that moment a little bit. And, and there's a nice little excerpt in this, which um, she says, quote, uh, the dialogue exchange where we're drinking in Deckard's kitchen. And I tell him that I'm not in the business. I am the business. There was a sound guy standing off camera during that. And afterwards he said to me, I have never seen something so magnificent in all my years in show business. I remember thinking, huh? How could that possibly be? But I never forgot that he said that. Well, it's so interesting because in that moment, at least for me, it reads like she is aware of what she is. Mm -hmm. And how yes. intimidating is that? 
And how powerful is that for her to say, oh, no, no, no. I, I know this little flirty game that you're doing with me. I, I know what I am in this world. And I'm very confident with it. And thank you very much. Like, I, I'm, I'm not in the business. I am the business. But I also so, feel like, like she's saying I'm nothing at the same time. Like, she's completely broken. She's in tears. She's also, I feel, at least my perception, because obviously we all perceive different things differently. Um, I feel like she's in this, in sort of the, she's inhabiting this body of this person that she, you know, this confident person that she used to be, you know, a few hours ago and she's broken and she goes, I'm sort of, this is, I'm just a product now. I'm a product. That's all that I am. That's all that I, I've found out that I am. And she has nothing in that moment. It's, and it's, she's the most vulnerable with, well, arguably with Deckard that she, she has been yet. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting point. You guys both bring up about that interaction. Um, because I think that it's also Deckard trying to connect a little bit and sympathize the way he would with another Blade Runner, right? Like, Oh yeah, the shakes, you know, it's like, I am in almost a constant state of PTSD from murdering people and have brought myself to drink every day to try and cope with it. So I get what you're saying. And and also like it's normal, it's part of the business. And she's, I think part of her response is also like, don't give me that shit. Like you can walk away from this. You're not compelled to or, or tied to this. Like I, it, like James said, like I'm a product. I am, my my inherent being is this business. So like, you know, there's no comparison there. I think there's something in those lines that say that as well, even though she doesn't say them angrily. But I think, again, it's it's all part of this this whole, like, really deep awareness that she has. For a character who we tend to talk about in terms of not having her identity or, or not having the identity that she thought she had, she has really deep observations about identity, right? And yeah. the way that I've always seen that line isn't so much that she's broken um, as much as she's basically saying like what kind of like they were saying like, like like wake the fuck up this is real this is real this is me right this isn't some abstract concept this is this is real um, and again I just think that it's it's just amazing that she can that she can do that I mean for for anybody let alone somebody who just had their entire world recontextualized that afternoon it's absolutely incredible I think another I think interesting parallel well, I, I suppose you could call it a parallel, is the idea of what she's become is, you know, again, she's sort of on top of the world. She's working for the Tyrell Corporation. She is she is sort of where everyone wants to be. She's probably working in the, in the biggest corporation on Earth or whatever in terms of what they provide, the resources they provide off-world, slave labor, all of these things. She was in this the top ranks working next to Eldon Tyrell and then all of that fell away but I I also can't help to think that she not only loses that but she becomes someone who her life is in danger now whatever time she has left she doesn't know she wants to know her life is in danger and I I, I can't ever at least in the time that we live in now where like I'll walk out my front door and I'll we have people who you know who take care of the complex that I live in in terms of the townhome uh, corporation and they mow the grass and they cut the shrubs and they do the trees and all of those people are Latino and I always think when I see them are they one of them is he undocumented and I think 
And I'm thinking, I hope he's taking care of himself. I hope he's being careful. I hope he's not going to the wrong places because it's dangerous for him if he does. And I wonder if I'm going to see him next week. And I think about Rachel sort of in that context when you've been what essentially she has become is less than human. But one thing I also wanted to mention um, when we were talking about Roy and Rachel sort of informing Deckard's humanity, and it reminds me of 2049 when Mariette says, more human than humans. They do feel more human than we do. They feel like they're, they. everyone else seems sort of to have let go and they don't care. Certainly Deckard, who's sort of the main human, but also with Bryant, people just seem to not care. You even see that later on in 2049 with Joshi. Like you just feel like these humans that are, that have been left on earth, they just, they're lost in drink and pleasure. Um, and the people grappling with life and living and identity are the non-humans and they're teaching humans how to be human and they are more human than human. And I, I, I've never, that, that, that quote or that tagline, I guess you could call it, continues to change and to grow every time I hear it because it means so many different things. And I really feel like in that situation, certainly with, uh, in the context of, of Rachel and Deckard, she's the human there. She's the one dealing with sort of what we deal with on a daily basis, which is why these replicants are so important to us, because we see themselves in, in them. And there's a reason why we don't see ourselves in Deckard, or we see the dangers of humanity in Deckard. I agree, like, 100% with that. And I think that's one of, if not for me, the most powerful motif in the Blade Runner movies is that very thing, that the the things that are not supposed to be human are more human than we are and how scary is that and what a wake-up call is that um and I also wanted to say really briefly um something that I've been thinking about a little bit with Rachel that is super powerful for me we get to see someone who is actively suspended in a moment of crisis um and it's like that moment you kind of it's funny because it's like a trope in Looney Tunes you know when um when a character is is falling off a cliff and they're kind of suspended there for a minute and you can see the horror come across their face. And it's hilarious when you're watching the cartoon, but you know that it stems from something in real life. And um, in this instance, it's Rachel and it's her whole life that she thought she had um, and the whole person that she was working on that she was building up until like hours ago has been taken away from her. And I feel like we we get to witness like this character on the brink as the ground literally is taken away from her underneath her feet. And um, an like that in and of itself is so explosively powerful and emotional to witness as um, you're watching the movie that I think that always stays with me personally when I watch Blade Runner. And then how that magnitude of a like the, that moment informs where that character goes afterwards and what we see in those little moments those immediate moments afterwards when she's in Deckard's apartment talking to him and what she does is she even further disassembles her quote-unquote identity like we talk about her um her, her visually and, and what she represents in the beginning of the movie versus when um she takes her hair down in that scene, which I think is so moving because you see what her hair actually looks like when it's just down and free. 
And I just, I just really love, and I think it's so powerful that we see this person who was stripped of her identity, essentially, but then she further, she takes off another piece of that identity voluntarily in that moment. And it's just how we, how people deal with, um, intense change and, um, very, very scary things that are happening, happening to them in real time is incredibly powerful to me. And I think that is a huge part of why Rachel always stays with me. It's funny in a really, um, kind of, you know, banal way. Uh, this reminds me of something that a coworker was saying the other day. We, we were just like talking, you know, we were going around doing an icebreaking exercise, talking about like moments of change in our lives. Um, and she was mentioning how she went through this really bad breakup. And she was like, you know, I got a haircut. And everybody was like laughing because it was like a knowing, like, <laughs> of course, that's what you do when you get a breakup. But it's true. You get a fucking haircut when you get a bad breakup, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's like a, a thing in that, that we do is we change something about our physical identity to reflect something changed in our inward identity, I think. Not like that's a universal rule, but I think in, in some way there's, you know, people get a tattoo or they, they do something different. Um, there, there are ways where like this internal change can be manifested outwardly. I have a, a bigger point I want to get kind of get back to. You know, you're talking about identity, Micah. Jamie, you were talking about more human than human. Can we take a second and unpack that? Yeah, but sure. can I just, since we're talking about that scene with her hair, can I just make a quick comment? Yeah, real quick? yeah, 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 Connects yeah. to what yeah, both yeah. of you guys said. And, sure. and I think we've talked about this before, but I think that there's something very humanizing and deliberate about her letting down her hair like that. So much so that it's actually unrealistic. Like when you read the interview and you read about behind the scenes stuff, like there's no way she could go from her like super tight, you know, hair sprayed, almost like uh attractive helmet sort of style that that's not a good way to describe it but you know what i'm saying it's like attractive helmet like a shell fashion history lesson today i'm not using the right words but you know her hair is like it's like a one piece you could almost like take off as like a cap or something like what's that called though that that hairstyle is called something specific though uh a bouffant what's it called like a chignon. Sh- a sh- a sh- a sh- oh, is it uh, a bouffant? Is that what it's called? You're the Anyways. only one who will know this. No, I wouldn't. That's that's sexist. No, you're taking costume design courses. You're that's so why you're so sexist, you Patrick. Me? You're the most sexist. No, Michael will cut me off and be like, that's technically an empire waste. And I'll be like, okay, well, I'm sorry, because you had fucking costume courses. <laughs> I'm just annoying. I'm just annoying. Just, just disregard. Shut just up. Disregard. Shut up, Joy. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so rewinding. What I'm trying to say is that... Even in the production, it was obvious that what Ridley Scott, and this is in the interview, but what Ridley Scott wanted to do is go from this like hard hairsprayed haircut that kind of represents the like android or other or replicant to this more human moment where she pulls her hair down and it's soft and she's got these beautiful curls, which are her hair. And it was impossible to do. You couldn't physically go from that haircut or that hairstyle to just have her put her fingers in it and pull it down. So they had to cut it and edit it and do it so that, um, you know, an assistant was standing behind her holding her hair up like that and the camera cuts off at the top and then she's helping her let her hair down to achieve that look, which is interesting because I think in the actual scene, all of that difficulty and the impact, uh, almost the unreal uh, aspect of it makes sense because it changes her look so much. And that is a moment I think of her, um, not just like getting her hair cut after a breakup, which is also a good analogy, but I think of her finding her humanity and trying to look more human. I think there's a softness to it really. Um, And it's such a gorgeous moment, you know, it's it's really impactful 
when that moment is happening. Of course, all of these things we're talking about accentuated by Angelus's score, which is it just you know it impacts or makes all these things all the more impactful. Anyways, Patrick, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, no, not at all. There's a lot just visually to to discuss in, in that too, I think. Um, and also just like the, the loosening of the geometries and things like that, just from a visual standpoint, it's like a breath. It's like, you know, it, it feels like a real change totally. Um, I just want to go back, Jamie, you were, you were talking about more human than human, which is something that, you know, gets brought up a lot and it's on everybody's t-shirts and it's something that's used in a few different ways throughout the two films. And, and I think um, it might be worth talking about that a little bit through sociological concepts of cultures of people uh, of different minorities. So like, for example, you know, you, you were saying, I think very astutely that replicants are the ones who are more aware of their identity. They're the ones who talk about it more. They're the ones who are more um, concerned with being something discreet and, and being, being real and having, uh, you know, a voice in society. Whereas the people who are kind of in the ruling classes on, at least on, on world seem completely blase about it and just seem like they don't, um, they don't even have like a real sort of coordinated cultural expression. They're just sort of this like this mishmash, right? But the replicants say things like, you know, like especially in 2049, that we are more human than the humans are, right? That we are we are a thing, that we deserve a voice, we deserve this, that we are something. And I think if you look at, for example, like black and black and quote unquote white culture in the United States, it's a great analogy to that, right? Like black culture, because it exists among a, a people who are minorities within American culture. It has to be more visible. It has to be more talked about. It has to be cultivated specifically because if we don't, it will get overshadowed by the majority voice, which is this the default culture of the United States, right? Which is by default Western European, basically. Um, and you see this anywhere in the world. There are people who don't have as many seats at the table as they should have. They have to be louder and they have to be more vocally together because if they don't, then like that voice is going to get swallowed up. By a majority, so I think there's a, a real sociological reason why, um, you know, replicants are more um, like culturally aware of who they are, and more they discuss that more, and they seem driven by that. Because if they didn't, that that wouldn't happen, right? If white people in America, or if non-replicant humans who are genetically okay on world in twenty four in twenty nineteen and twenty forty nine, if 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 they don't or we don't, um, you know, actively promote our culture, it doesn't really matter because the culture will default to it because that's the paradigm that we live in, right? If minorities in either of those situations don't, then that culture will be subsumed. So I, I think that that's part of the dynamic that's going on. And I think more human than human, um, at first it's fascinating because it starts off, of course, as a marketing gimmick, right? It's the same thing that when you, you know, if, if somebody get, creates a, an amazing knockoff, right? If somebody creates a Rolex that's better than a Rolex, they'll say, this is such a Rolex. It doesn't, the, what you think of as a Rolex isn't even actually a Rolex anymore, right? Like you won't believe the deals we got for you. I got better functionality, more, you know, more to go on. I'm going to slap the roof and sell you this thing that you're going to love. And you won't even think about what you could have had before this, right? It's a marketing gimmick by Tyrell, but it becomes, of course, a rallying cry of this nascent resistance movement in the second film. And I think that's something that the replicants, though, also are aware of because in consistently questioning their humanity and consistently engaging on it and consistently talking about it, they are more human than the humans are, right? The humans have become basically just this default fishbowl existence. Um, and the replicants have never had the luxury of doing that because they've had to fight for a voice this entire time. And I think that's a, a real reason why that becomes such a central 
um, cry for them in the second film, and why when it's brought up in the first film, we feel uncomfortable every single time because we're aware of what that quote is actually saying vis-a-vis -vis what it means, not what it's saying in the film. Again, another very profound thing for me is, you know, of course, at the end of the film, you see Rachel and Deckard get into the elevator and there's so much hope there. There's so much wokeness, I guess you could call it. Like you can see it in his eyes. You can see it in her eyes. They know they have at least the, even if that agency is temporary, they know they belong together. And then it, they know that togetherness needs to forge a future for itself. And what I think is so devastating and well that's the note we leave on in the film we leave on a note of hope like there is hope for humanity that these things that aren't technically human can teach us how to be better so maybe there's hope for the world and then you switch to 2049 and all that hope is gone and the world took a dive it took a nosedive and Deckard is now in a worse place than he was before and Rachel turns into goddess status because not only did she inspire that hope and help to create it, she also created life. So she was, she did something that was also impossible. First with Deckard in the original, and then with having a child. And I, I feel like that's why she sort of echoes. I feel like her echo is louder now, even in the first film, because of the miracle of sort of the conversion of Deckard. He had a, he had a, he, she was his redemption in many ways. Obviously, Roy played a really big role in that. But the jumping off point for that was Rachel with the questions. Who are you? Are you sure you, you know who you are? I don't know. And then her, well, where can I go? What if I go north? All of these questions. You know, she's fighting for her life and he's sort of still blasé about it. So then again, by the time we reach 2049, obviously she's gone. She's more present than she's ever been. Uh, even in the first film and, and, and I think it makes her her character even more impactful in the first film uh, one other point that I wanted to make is that we haven't really discussed is Rachel's memories and who she thought she was and all of it was torn away so when you have something torn away and I think about like Alzheimer's and how evil a disease that is and when, what it's doing is it's tearing humanity from people they're becoming shells they're becoming automatons they're not they're not even they're, they, they can't recognize their wife or their children slowly it's it's, it's, it's a disease that slowly takes, takes over and it's a horrible, awful thing. And the idea of what would you do if someone walked in and said to you, Micah, we gave you the wrong child. That's not yours. Henry is not yours. Um, what, what would you do Damn. Later, on, later on? What would he do if he found out or, or say, say Henry's parents came in and they had yours and you had theirs and you're like and so it's all being torn away from you even though all those memories that you have with Henry are real you have to give him away and you don't say that to me <laughs> <laughs> but that's what Rachel was going through and I think I mean yeah why Rachel is so powerful I think for me is you know and I didn't really think that I was gonna get as 
this personal, but I, I think about like my own past and how I grew up in a commune and how I grew up with 150 other children and I was raised by 250 adults essentially. A lot of most of them married, a lot of them single, and I had this life that started off in the 70s and they had a band and they toured and it sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, that movie Almost Famous. It reminds me of growing up in that sort of hippie free love environment that was certainly couched in Christianity. Um, and all of that was stolen from me. All of that was taken away. The moment I left, I w they looked at me like, who are you? Why are you talking about this? You don't belong here. And I think that's another reason why Rachel resonates so deeply, because I know what it's like to have your identity taken from you. Um, and I, I think very few people are, you know, unless maybe you're adopted or... Or, I mean, and I, I actually think about you sometimes, Dan, because I know you come from a culture, you were raised in Italy, and then you came to the United States where people don't speak Italian like you speak Italian. And what that might have been where that Italian identity, not that it was stripped from you where people were like, no, you're not Italian anymore, but you're not living in a world that's familiar. You're not the, the Dan from Bergamo or however you say it. I'm sorry. You're, yeah, Dan, you're fine. You're the Dan living in California and what, and that's, a, you sort of lost, not that you lost it, but you physically lost that piece of your identity. But what that might mean, what, what losing identity means, what, what it might mean to Patrick and Micah, if someone told you that Henry was not yours, how would you deal with that? And that's what Rachel was dealing with. And not just, oh, this isn't your child. You're not even human. None of this belongs to you. Later on, Deckard has to go through that by himself. His wife was his wife or whatever she was to him was not only stripped of him, his child was taken from him as well. Um, I, again, yeah. it just it just inputs it, it informs her character to be this larger than life character that I could never have possibly imagined. And that's sort of how I relate to her. And it gives us the contrast. Rachel's character is partly so impactful because she's different from Roy and she's different from Leon and she's different from Zora, they were never under the illusion that they were real humans, right? They knew they were replicants. They didn't have these implanted memories. Whereas Rachel was brought up under a false premise, under a lie. Um, and so, yeah. I, and so I think I'll use myself as an example since you brought it up, but I think this is what we can all relate to. We all find times within our lives where we feel like we don't belong. From the most banal, like you're going through middle school and like, you know, maybe Henry or Jude will go through this when they're going through middle school, like like we all certainly did, where you're like, oh, I don't fit in with these kids. I don't fit in with those kids. And you have to kind of find your place, right? Um, growing up bicultural, I always had this weird feeling like in Italy, people would call me the American and I never exactly fit in with all the Italian kids the same way because people knew I was different. And then I had to traumatically and, and that point in my life move here when I was 11 and I was the Italian kid and I didn't really fit in with Americans. So when you, when you find other bicultural people, regardless of whether they share your one or more of your cultures at all, you can relate to this feeling of not belonging. So expanding it out to something that I think everybody can understand anytime you're exposed and forced to be in a place where you feel like you don't belong that is something humans are inherently really uncomfortable with. You want to belong. You want to have a tribe. You want to have connection with the people around you that is not necessarily based on your personal connection. It, there's there's a shared past. There's a shared history. And um, not having that period 
can be traumatic for humans. But thinking that you have that and having it ripped away from you suddenly, and at this higher level, it's your actual humanity is so relatable because I think we all have smaller, no, no one's ever walked into our lives and told us we weren't human, but we all have other examples growing up um, of times where we didn't belong and we had trouble fitting in. And I think that's a big part of what's easy to relate to about Rachel as well. Yeah. And it's, it's also, there's those moments in your life where you turned out to be different than who you thought you were and, and how vulnerable it is to be in that place and how scary it can be. Um, and I think it's, it's also powerful that we get to see what Rachel, we get to see a glimpse and then a confirmation of what Rachel chooses to do with that vulnerability, which is to go and build a life with Deckard and to have the child and to be the anomaly, the miracle. And um, I think that's incredibly powerful. And that's what really solidifies her presence in both of the films for me is what she chooses to do in the moments after everything's taken away from her when she's vulnerable and when she could simply fade like a flower or she could fly away with Deckard and actually enjoy what she has left and, and give further meaning to her life by having that child. So I think that's really powerful with Rachel's character in both of the films. I feel like that's a good place to stop. Agreed. I think that there's more, but I feel like uh, we should stop there. In this episode, obviously this character is really a really powerful character to all of us in a varying amount of ways. I mean, I even know Dan, like I just can't kind of came to mind where you're talking about when you first met your wife and what that was like and sort of, the, wh how what Rachel represents to all of us in so many different ways and sort of loss. Rachel is identity, but she's also loss of identity as well. Um, but there does seem to be more that we can discuss. We're probably going to come back to this episode uh, in, in a part two. We're going to get your feedback. If you guys are interested, If we would love to hear from you. If you guys want to uh, send us a, an email or post on our Facebook page or in our group feels a Kalantha, please do so or send us a voicemail before we leave this episode. We just want to say a couple things. We're throwing an event next month, November 13th on a Wednesday it starts at 12 PM. It's going to be a pretty big deal. We're crazy busy with it right now. Um, Los Angeles, November, 2019 an event. It takes place at the Pacific stock exchange, downtown Los Angeles. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're more likely to find it as exchange LA cause that's the club that's currently occupying it. But, uh, yeah, it's on spring and sixth, I want to say, but all this information is on uh, bladerunnerpodcast.com and you can link to our, um, our Eventbrite site that has all this information. Uh, you can buy tickets and uh, we're really excited. Paul Salmon's going to be there. Joanna Cassidy will be there and Charles Del Zarico will be there. We'll have an audience Q and a, um, it's gonna be a really good time. And we already have a lot of our, um, recurrent listeners and kind of commenters in fields of Calantha that are coming that a lot of us have, you know, relationships with you guys and our friends. So we're really excited to see you all there. And, um, yeah, by the time this, uh, publishes, we'll be really close to the event. Yes, we will. So we'd love to see you guys there. Uh, tickets are still on sale. Hopefully uh, they'll go. We'll sell, we'll sell them all out. We'll see. But thanks for listening everyone. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.